If you haven't already rated and reviewed the Single Tracks podcast in your podcast app, now's the time to do it. We're randomly selecting listener reviews to read on the show, and if we choose yours, you'll get a free Single Tracks hat in the mail. Hit pause right now, write a quick review, and then listen to future episodes to find out if you won yourself a hat. Happy trails. Hey everybody, welcome to the Single Tracks podcast. My name is my name is Jeff, and today my guest is Douglas Cartree. Douglas is a bicycle mechanic, mountain bike guide, and mountain bike trail consultant at Big Mountain, Scotland. He's also served as a National Park Conservation intern, and he conducted research into mountain bike behavior as a student at University of Highlands and Islands in Scotland. Thanks for joining us, Douglas. Thanks for having me. So how long have you been mountain biking? Um, So I've been mountain biking for around about seven years. It's something I've always sort of done. Um, But I got competitive (laughs) uh, (laughs) in it when I was around about seven, did a bit of cross-country racing and enduro and stuff. Um, So yeah, I've done done a bit. (laughs) Yeah, um, just so happened that we were passing by a venue that there was a race on and they still had entries and my brother wanted to try it. So I did too. He kind of dragged me into it and I've stuck at it. <laughs> wow. That's incredible. What kind of bike were you riding? What kind of like, what's a competitive mountain bike for a seven-year-old? Oh, um, it was pretty, it's pretty bad, but it was a 24 inch wheeled, uh, Ridgeback. It was a kind of entry level mountain bike. Uh-huh. I probably had the heaviest bike there. I think I was six out of eight kids but it got me hooked yeah right on that's cool so did your interest in mountain biking influence your selection of coursework at university yeah definitely i've always kind of been interested in the outdoors and the environment Mm -hmm. and yeah through mountain biking and various outdoor pursuits i was just interested in seeing how the outdoor world worked more and so geography was a kind of a natural progression for me uh, of understanding yeah. the outdoor world and seeing how I could link, you know, sport as well as conservation together. Yeah. Yeah. Was mountain biking for you like a way to, to get outside? Like what did you enjoy most about mountain biking? Was it the racing and competing or was it, you know, just being able to get outdoors and access scenery and, and that kind of thing? I'd say that the racing was probably a catalyst for actually getting me out. But yeah, I definitely, looking back, I kind of enjoy just getting out there and getting outside and, you know, seeing what Scotland has to offer. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it definitely got me out there. And yeah, like still, it's it's probably the main reason that I I ride. Yeah. It's not necessarily about the the adrenaline, although that's there. It's not, it's not the be all and end all for me. Yeah. Well, as a student, you wrote a thesis investigating mountain bikers' levels of awareness about a particular conservation issue. So give us an overview of the study. So the purpose of the study was to identify whether local mountain bikers or visiting mountain bikers were more aware of a species uh, of bird called capercaillie um, in the Cairngorms National Park and looking at how willing both visitors and uh, local mountain bikers would be to change their behavior, basically to benefit that particular species. Okay. And also looking at the best way to communicate with the mountain bike community and making sure that they have best information possible. Um, Mm -hmm. 
So it was kind of linking mountain biking and conservation um, and seeing how we can bridge the gap um, between between the two. Yeah. Well, did you, in as part of your study, were you only looking at mountain bikers or were you looking at all trail users and kind of seeing how aware they were of this conservation issue? Uh, so it was primarily mountain bikers. There's been a bit of work with other user groups mm-hmm. in Scotland, but mountain bikers kind of have been left out a little bit. Generally, they're sort of viewed as quite a hard group of people to approach. Um, so there have been various studies done and they kind of, they don't quite capture the mountain bike community right. Um, just simple things like branding trail riders as downhill mountain bikers and, you know, just, just little things like that. They don't necessarily get the the mountain bike world. Um, then we're not, we don't have like a collective group in Scotland of, you know, we are the mountain bike society or in a, whereas with walking and climbing and various other outdoor pursuits, there's a sort of big governing body um, that you can communicate with and get through to a lot of these other user groups. So they've been well studied, but mountain bikers have kind of been left out a little bit. So I kind of wanted to get in there and show that, you know, we can communicate with mountain bikers and it's not very difficult. You just kind of have to know how to approach the, how to approach them. Hmm. Well, is it, do you think it's a matter of mountain bikers uh, not being approachable one-on-one or is it more of what you're saying? It's just that they're not as organized. And so you can't go to like, you know, the head mountain biker and say, Hey, you know, we want to talk to your people. Or do you think, do you think people are, I don't know, do they see mountain bikers as more aggressive or more difficult just to even talk to? Yeah. So a lot of the studies I looked at uh, sort of branded mountain bikers as rebels almost. We're not a, <laughs> we're not a typical um, outdoor user group in Scotland. Mm. In Scotland, it's quite traditional. There's lots of people that are into hill walking and just walking around forests as families. And climbing has got quite a strong heritage here. So do, so do paddle sports and lots of water sports and things and even trail running. Um, but mountain bikers are kind of, you know, we're fairly new and um, it's only really taken off in Scotland in the last sort of 20 years with the access rights that we were we were granted uh, in 2003, basically allowed mountain biking to, to take off. Um, and the way that mountain bikers move as well, we tend to move quite quickly. People wear really bright colours, you know, the current sort of enduro culture as well maybe doesn't help things with the the way that we speak to one another and you know shouting mm-hmm. on trails and things like that and um, so we can be seen as quite rowdy or potentially yeah aggressive but actually you know you'll know yourself that mountain bikers are really nice people and um, there is there's maybe there's maybe one or two that ruin it for people but generally you know if you stop and chat to somebody they'll they're more than happy to, to have a conversation with you. Um, and I think yeah. it's just people don't necessarily realize that. And um, so that's why I was so keen as a mountain biker to kind of show, you know, although we do like, you know, riding through the woods and doing kind of stupid stuff now and again, we do, we are interested in the outdoors and the environment. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. I mean, that's something we don't really think about too, kind of that social, aspect of it and yeah just how we're perceived you know i mean i 
think about it now, like you're wearing a helmet. I mean, if you're wearing a full face helmet and you've got goggles on and you're on a bike, so you're kind of like at a higher level than the people you're encountering on the trail, I could see how that, that could be kind of not scary, but there does seem to be that like separation between like us and them and, you know, people being kind of wary about talking to mountain bikers. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's unfortunate. And I think we're, we're kind of breaking through it now in Scotland anyway, uh, sort of bridging the gap, even if it is just, you know, chatting to people outside of a trail, whether they're walking up and you're riding down and rather than just flying past them, you know, stopping and saying, Oh, it's a beautiful day. You know, where are you heading? You know, what's the trail like down here? Um, because a lot of what we have in Scotland is, is multi-use paths. Um, we're free to ride walking paths. Walkers are free to ride mountain bike trails if they like, Mm -hmm. or walk mountain bike trails. Um, there's nothing stopping either group from doing that. So you do quite often come across somebody else on the trail that isn't, necessarily a mountain biker so you do kind of have to have to be careful and conscious of how how you're coming across as a as a mountain biker not to be aggressive or as i say just riding past people without even looking at them and so yeah we do we do still have a way to go but mountain bikers can definitely be perceived as yeah a bit out there and not the more traditional user groups in certainly in scotland well, let's talk about this this bird, this endangered bird, the capercaillie. Uh, it's, from my understanding, it's it's a rather large bird. It's it's like a turkey uh, for our listeners who know what a turkey is. Um, so, what's so special about this bird, and why is it endangered? Yeah, so the capercaillie um, is it's only really in Europe that that you find them. It's sort of known as being a western european species um and yeah they grow to around about 80 centimeters tall and around about four kilograms so they are they're quite big for for a bird it's part of the grouse family um so that maybe brings it into perspective for some of your listeners in in america um but yeah they've not had an easy life in scotland uh they went extinct in britain in the 18th century uh were reintroduced in the 1830s um, and then since they were reintroduced they flourished they did really really well and then it's just gone downhill um, and mm-hmm. that is kind of been put down to habitat loss so you know deforestation and that has basically meant that the populations that were there have kind of been split apart mm-hmm. and confined to their individual woodlands so and then these are generally commercial forests as well so they can experience habitat loss and things like that and then as more people have sort of moved into the highlands especially in the cairngorms as it's become a national park it's become quite a popular place to move to and live we've seen lots of people moving into quite close proximity to these woodlands and um, and that's not made the Caper Cayley's life any easier. So there's the Cairngorms, which is the area I study, just uh, is home to around about 80% of Scotland's Caper Cayley population. And there's only between 1,000 and 2,000 Caper Cayley left. Oh, wow. Uh, so there's, well, in, in Scotland, there's some elsewhere in Europe. But yeah, certainly in Scotland, there's, there's not a lot. And the kind of 
issue with mountain bikers is we also we we favor the same sort of habitat as as caper kaylee do uh, kind of kind of ironically um yeah it's it's a funny one and yeah as i say these forests that we that we like riding in are also home to the caper kaylee and are really close to to where a lot of people are living so they become places that people build trails in ultimately and mm-hmm. that can have a yeah negative implication for for the caper kaylee yeah. Yeah. Have you seen a caper Kelly in the wild? Yeah. So I've seen, I've seen quite a few, even mostly just when out mountain biking, not even looking for them. Um, you'll mm-hmm. just turn a corner and spot one. Okay. So it's pretty common for mountain bikers to see them when they're riding in that area. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say it's, it's common. If you chat to anybody that lives there and rides, they'll have seen one. But generally people that are visiting either won't know what it is because the females look quite similar to to some other other birds that we have in Scotland or they'll they'll spot one and be super happy about it but yeah it's it's kind of not a lot of people know about them that are visiting so the locals know know a lot about them and I've seen them all the time and visitors Mm -hmm. you know might have seen one but wouldn't know what it was yeah are these birds like mostly they mostly stick to the ground I mean I'm imagining like a large bird not doing a lot of flying around like are they ground-based or they have nests in trees where do you usually see them yeah so they're they're generally ground based and they roost in trees so they'll have a perch somewhere that they like to sit on but it's not you know it's not like a big nest and you wouldn't see one flying through the sky Uh, if you see one flying it'll be at head height Uh, through a forest and so you're unlikely to see them flying and it's generally on the ground and going the opposite opposite direction from you because they've they've had a scare. Well, your study focused uh, primarily on mountain bikers, so I want to ask you: Do mountain bikers tend to bother animals more than other trail users, or or is it about the same uh, for like hikers or people on horses or things like that? Um, so it kind of it varies. Um, certainly with Caper Kelly, they don't necessarily disturb them as much as other users. Um, it's thought that other forest users, such as dog walkers, probably cause the biggest disturbance um, with dogs off leads running through the forest um, mm-hmm. and people walking or moving quite slowly. Whereas mountain bikers, they move quite quickly through the through the forest. Um, mm-hmm. They might, you know, scare that animal initially. But actually, because they're gone, they're, you know, they're gone reasonably quickly, and mm-hmm. things can then kind of return to normal, um, rather than that person walking. It takes quite a long time to to move out with the area. Mm-hmm. Um, but the biggest issue that mountain bikers have is how far we can travel. So we can travel really deep into the forest, onto trails that maybe get used once a week. Um, mm-hmm. So that's when we kind of start to see issues is on these trails that are further into the forest, um, which is kind of where species like Caper Kelly are are inhabiting um, away from people. Um, so they're kind of more used to people on regularly used trails, but it's on these these sort of trails that are deep in the forest that they, they have issues um, because they're not expecting anything, basically. Yeah. Um, so it's that that's kind of yeah that 
that's where mountain bikers pose an issue. So what are some of the things that mountain bikers have been asked to do to avoid disturbing the Capricales? So at the moment, we haven't really, mountain bikers haven't been asked to do anything specific. So there's a few sites in the Cairngorms that there's signs up that say, all forest users, please stick to the trails during breeding season for Capricale, which is April to August. So we're not being told not to ride. Um, we're kind of being told, you know, stick to the trails. If you've got a dog, keep it on the trail. Don't let it run off into the forest and potentially disturb something. It is about, you know, sticking to these well, well-used trails. And yes, with with our outdoor access laws in Scotland, we can't really be told not to ride trails. It kind of prevents any sort of blanket bans. Um, there are there are some instances that people are told, you know, this is a sensitive environmental area. Uh, you can't really come in here. But yeah, with our outdoor access laws, that's not happened uh, yet with Caper Cayley. Hmm. So I'm curious to know how unofficial trails play a role in this. I imagine that the established trails are generally going to be routed to sort of minimize wildlife impact. Do you, do you find in your survey and in your study that a lot of mountain bikers were using unofficial trails within the park? And what's the impact of that? Yeah. So I had two study sites in the Cairngorms, which were quite close to one of the bigger towns, which quite popular tourists called Aviemore. Um, and within those two sites, all of the trails are unofficial. We don't have any official trails oh. so there in the past there have been plans to build official trails in the area but then due to the caper Cayley, they were moved elsewhere so they were moved further further away out with the, the area so as a majority of the trails are are unofficial mm -hmm. but they're very well utilized so they're well used by not only mountain bikers they're used by dog walkers runners and everything in between um, so there's you know they're they're well established they've been there for yeah. a long time so it's not necessarily about the trails being unofficial it's you know the creating of new trails that becomes an issue um, although the building of trails doesn't necessarily have a negative impact unless they're built badly or in a fragile environment um, but thankfully the area has a pretty good trail association that are kind of upkeeping the trails themselves and and making sure that people aren't building new stuff that is going to be you know put everything at risk basically mm -hmm. yeah well it sounds like as part of your study you looked at uh, whether local riders were more aware of conservation issues than those who visit from other areas the spot where you're doing your study is people travel from all over to ride um, some of these trails. So did you find a difference between sort of awareness between those two groups? Yeah. Um, so over 60% of the local riders were aware of Caper Cayley and conservation issues, whereas only around about 40% of the visiting riders were. Um, so there's a big, a big difference for the people that are riding there regularly than those that are traveling to visit. So did you find that local riders were more receptive to hearing about the Caper Cayleys than people who are from out of town? Sometimes there's this 
assumption that maybe riders from out of town don't care as much about the trails because they figured these, you know, I don't live here. I'm not, not here all the time. And so it doesn't really matter to me. And, and maybe even the rules don't apply to me as much. Did you find that in talking with the, the out of town riders? Um, only a little bit. So when looking at the data, um, 80% of local riders uh, were kind of more than happy to, to do something and even stop riding in an area. Uh, during Cape Rakele breeding season to, to help the species, whereas it was 70% of people that were that were coming in. Um, so, you know, it's it's a tiny difference, really, um, when you look at you know, interviewing or speaking to hundred hundreds of different people. Um, so, I think it's it's pretty pretty universal um, in Scotland. We kind of, although we might travel for a few hours to go and ride somewhere else it's still not really that far away. Um, and if you do something wrong on that trail um, or, you know, you go out there and you're disturbing species or, you know, making a bad name for, for mountain biking, everybody's mm-hmm. going to know about it. Uh, people are right. going to know that you've traveled from this area or traveled into the area. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's quite, quite a holistic community. I'd like to think um, people are generally, all for supporting trails regardless of whether they're in the area or not and again that extends to to the environment i think yeah well you said that it sounded like local riders you know just over half of them were aware of the caper Kayleys, but then also most of them 80 percent were willing to change their behavior to have less of an impact. So how do you go about educating more people to get people, you know, from 60% awareness to close to a hundred percent? Are there methods that you found or that you think might be more effective when it comes to communicating information like this to trail users? Yeah. So I kind of asked people what their ideal form of communication uh, is and for a lot of people, it was really basic things like signage and information boards at trailheads in car parks and on the trails themselves. So not everybody's on social media. So having something physical that is really hard to miss at the entrance to the trail that says, you know, if you could not ride this trail today, that would be great. People are going to do it because yeah. uh, they don't they don't have to think they don't have to go and do research. They don't necessarily have to read my research paper, which is however many thousand words long and takes an hour to read, they can just show up and go, right, okay, not let's not ride that trail today. No problem. Mm-hmm. But people also, you know, we're quite keen on social media stuff. And I think it's got a really big part to play. You know, we've got these riders and influencers that are promoting brands and products. Why can't they also promote conservation information? It's not, it's not difficult really. You know, they have thousands of followers that are, all manner of mountain bikers. It's not just high level people or entry level folk. It's it's everybody mm-hmm. that these uh, social media influencers are accessing. So you know, there's definitely some work can be done there. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also kind of found there's there is a need for more articles and videos and blogs and things about conservation. Mm-hmm. Um, because there's ultimately there is writers that want to learn more and you know, understand why they maybe shouldn't be riding that trail at that time of year and really, you know, dive into it. And that is great because these are the people that are going to pass that information on to others. Mm. So yeah, there's, there's a need for a little bit of everything. 
uh, even to the extent of things like workshops and guided rides and stuff for more from local people than those that are visiting and um, just so the locals can really get to grips and see what's going on as well as reading about it. Hmm. Yeah. Well, it, I find it interesting too. I mean, you say that signage helps, but even within signage, you know, it's like, how, how do you communicate that? How do you say it? Um, and you know, your example of a sign that says it would be good if you maybe didn't ride today, you know, is much different than saying like, do not ride. Like you will, you know, there will be a massive fine and you will be taken to jail if you ride here today. So, I mean, was that part of what you looked at? Like how you communicate that and, and sort of if people are more receptive to sort of a, a nice message versus, you know, one that's, that's very direct. Um, it wasn't something I looked at specifically, but I definitely sort of found that people generally take to sort of more polite messages better, mm-hmm. you know, with that sort of, almost rebellious streak of mountain bikers if if you say don't ride there they're going to go and ride there right you know there's always going to be that that percentage of the of the um, community that does that um unfortunately so i yeah from what i've seen it tends to be that sort of middle ground it's not necessarily saying please don't ride this trail it's kind mm. of you know as i say could you not ride this trail at this time of year ride it any other time of year that's absolutely fine you know come December, do laps of it for all weekend. Right. But between within these couple of months, it'd be great if you didn't ride it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there's definitely a happy medium. We're not, I don't think anybody's going to put up signs saying, do not ride here. You'll be fined because that's just going to create backlash. Yeah. Um, yeah. People aren't going to be happy. Right. And so yeah, it's about educating people rather than, and punishing them. Yeah. That's a good point about education too. And again, the message is just, you know, I mean, again, you could say, just please don't ride here. And then nobody knows why. Right. And, but if you're giving them more information and saying, because there's this, you know, endangered species that's here and you might disturb it. And so, you know, we would appreciate it and the birds would appreciate it if you don't ride this time of year. It seems like people, when they have more information like that, they can make better decisions. And it sounds like a lot of times they're willing to make the right decision. Yeah, absolutely. When people, if people realize it's not just whoever owns the land that just doesn't want somebody mountain biking there, that there is something greater. And, you know, by not riding these trails, you're kind of protecting the environment and preserving the place that you like to ride so much um, and making it so that these trails are going to last longer and it's going to be accessible for future generations. I think people are more susceptible when they, when they kind of understand that, that it is more than, than just humans. Uh, there is more going on. It's not just about us riding bikes. Um, you have to think about the implications of it. Yeah. Well, there are obviously a number of different tools available to land managers, um, including enforcement and trail design, and then obviously education. So which one do you think provides the biggest impact in terms of, you know, modifying trail user behavior? Is it education or, you know, if you were able to start from scratch and maybe design the trail in a way that you're going to minimize those impacts, like, is that better or, or do you think ultimately education is, is the best way? Um, I think it's, there's kind of a combination, as you say, if we had a fresh bit of forest that we, you know, 
we were told to go and build trails, mm-hmm. then trail design can go a long way. Um, it can prevent a lot of problems. Spent a bit of time in Canada on the West Coast uh, and mm-hmm. seeing how effective trail design can go a long way. Uh, so basic things like you know zoning trails so that mountain bikers are kept away from sensitive areas or even keeping user groups apart so hikers and mountain bikers aren't on the same trails coming into conflict you know it can it can go a long way but ultimately in scotland we're in the position that the trails are already here um, and we kind of have to have to work backwards a little bit um so education definitely comes into play so educating people is the best solution for here uh, it doesn't work everywhere um, there are some places that ultimately they'll probably have to close trails and start again um, and we've we've kind of seen that already in scotland where where some trails have been have been closed off and they said right guys this is enough we kind of need to you know we've got so many other trails that are close by you know we can lose a couple um, and that's unfortunate but if these people were educated from the start or there was something else in place then you wouldn't have those issues um but yeah ultimately if people understand that there is implications from mountain biking and there are consequences mm-hmm. environmentally mm-hmm. from from doing things badly yeah. um then you know you don't have these problems that that come on come on down down the road um so yeah education is probably is probably top of my priority list in terms of things we can do at the moment yeah yeah, does enforcement play a role at all? I know here in the U.S., you know, I mean, there just aren't a lot of land managers or rangers or people who are going to be out sort of watching bikers and hikers and making sure they're following all the rules and, and you know, being sensitive to wildlife and things like that. But does it play a role at all? Like, I don't know, if you, if you were able to enforce the rule and make an example out of people. We see that every now and then. Do you think that is effective or again, does it come back to education? Um, I think it's, it's effective in some situations. I think there are times that maybe somebody does need to be made an example of, um, but I'd only really like to see that after education has happened. You know, if somebody has been educated and, you know, don't build a trail here because you're going to, Mm-hmm. damage the environment you're going to make things worse for everybody and then they go and do it fair enough yeah there's then there's then a need for somebody to step in and go hand them with a fine or whatever um, yeah <laughs> whatever whatever needs to be done uh but i personally see that as a sort of last resort we shouldn't jump to to enforce it straight away but ultimately there is there is that little bit that you know there maybe is a need for for people watching what's going on as well there is maybe the need for for rangers that understand mountain biking and understand mountain bike trails, mm-hmm. um, so that when something new is popping up, they can step in straight away uh, and say, "We're going to have to stop this right now. We can't have a trail mm-hmm. built here." So having that there from the start, yeah, again, could it could it could make a big difference. Mm-hmm. Um, but as I say, I'd like to see sort of education being top of the priority list rather than uh, enforcement, because ultimately enforcement can create conflict whereas education is quite you know it's quite accessible really and so yeah i'd like to see enforcement as a as a last resort yeah yeah you make a good point that education should should come before enforcement i mean if you don't know the rules 
then, I mean, that's, that's no excuse. I'm sure you can, you can argue that in court all day long and, you know, still, still get the book thrown at you. But for mountain biking, there's just so many people joining the sport all the time, especially right now who yet yeah, for, they just don't know any better. They're new. There's a lot to learn with mountain biking as, as most of us know, you know, in terms of like fitness and, and learning how to, ride technical trails and your gear. And I mean, there's just so much to learn. And so sometimes environmental stuff, maybe that's not going to be the first thing you learn trail etiquette. Um, there's a learning curve to that as well. And so, yeah, it only seems fair that, that you really focus on that end and not worry so much about, you know, trying to enforce the rules that maybe a lot of people aren't even aware of. Yeah, no, Absolutely. Well, you're also a mountain bike guide and director for Big Mountain Scotland. What are some of the best places to ride there? Um, so I'm probably slightly biased on this. Um, my <laughs> my favorite trails at the moment are are in Dunkeld, um, which is where I grew up and where I'm currently living um, and where my business is based as well. Um, okay. We've got a lot of variety here. Um, we've got lots of super rocky, rooty muddy horrible trails that are just just amazing at this time of year um when they're covered in water and yeah it's it's a great time for everyone um but there's also a lot of sort of fast fully trails um that are accessible for for kids which is great we've seen more of that being built and you know looking at how how much use they get it's it's great um especially as you say with with more people coming in into the mountain bike community mm -hmm. um, although we don't really have a lot of jumps in this part of the world we don't do big gap jumps and things and um, they tend to get torn down pretty quickly but i guess the the trails in the cairngorms that i studied um and you know rode for for three years whilst i was studying in inverness um will probably be the close second it's an amazing place to ride the ability to ride mm -hmm. a sort of rocky mountaintop descent and then go into the woods at the bottom and finish the day with some laps of techie, really rocky trails that are loamy and fast. Um, yeah. And then go to the pub <laughs> without having to drive anywhere <laughs> um, is is awesome. It's it's unreal. Uh, it's an amazing part of the world. I highly recommend to anyone visiting Scotland to to check out the Cairngorms uh, as well yeah. as all the, the sort of more popular places. Yeah. Um, there's there's a lot more riding in Scotland than people realise, um, and hopefully once restrictions allow, I'll be able to show some some clients what Scotland has to offer, and hopefully educate them about the environment on the way. Yeah, yeah. Do you think that knowing about the environment enhances the ride for people? I mean, it, it sounds like it does for you personally. Do you think other people feel the same way? Yeah, definitely. I think it, if people kind of understand what is going on a bit more and if that person sees a caper Cayley on their own they're maybe not going to think twice just think oh there's a bird but if you tell yeah. them that there's only you know 1,000 2,000 of those left and they've just seen one mm -hmm. they're going to be hopefully pretty stoked on it um, yeah. and yeah I think that the more that you understand the environment and even how trails work um, and the effort that goes into building trails and the whole sort of wider world outside the mountain bike community i think uh, it can only only enhance people's people's riding experience yeah it can't it can't be a bad thing knowing about how the world works in my opinion yeah 
I agree. Well, Douglas, uh, thanks so much for talking with us and sharing your research. I've learned a ton, and I, I'm sure our listeners will as well. So thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, that's all we've got this week. We'll talk to you again next week.